right. Welcome, guys, to another episode of Jim Goss. And today we are joined by Brandon Kempter, natural pro uh, bodybuilder down here in Australia. Welcome, Brandon. Thank you very much for having me, guys. Super appreciated. And as always, you're here with myself and Sam. No, Jackson today. He is uh, sleeping and recovering uh, up in Bali, but he will be with us next time. So, BK. Uh, we've known each other since back in 2016, I believe I first met you when you were mm. running around the bropocalypse with just stupid amounts of uh, prepared meals, um, <laughs> looking, looking for microwaves. And the funny thing is when you came to the UABC a few years later, not much had changed. Um, and you were still talking about titrating carbs back then and you are today. So I love that about you. Not much has changed. And that's why you're a good bodybuilder because you stick to your routines and you're very systematic and you just tick the boxes day in, day out, year after year. And that's what we're going to talk about today. So from meeting you at the Bropocalypse, it's been very cool to see your progression in the industry um, and to see you go from somebody attending uh, seminars to then presenting last year at the UABC, albeit uh, online, uh, fortunately and unfortunately. And you discussed a phasic approach uh, to bodybuilding, uh, which is something that uh, I think has become a lot more, we'll call it mainstream within the evidence-based community uh, mm. these days. But I know back when I started bodybuilding, it was off-season and contest prep that was it there was no real phasic approach even though that's still phasic it's just not as uh, well structured at the moment yeah. so before we get into things do you want to give everyone a bit of a background as to yourself uh, beyond what i've uh, outlined and uh, then we'll discuss everything phasic nutrition for bodybuilding sounds good well for those that don't know me my name is brandon kenter uh first and foremost before i was coach i was first athlete so I've been competing as a drug-free natural bodybuilder since uh, since I was a teen. And uh, from there, you know, I've went through competing as a teen, junior, open, uh, then into, you know, pro bodybuilding. And throughout that process, I obviously continued my education and uh, began coaching athletes exclusively in, oh, exclusively coaching physique athletes. It's been... Uh, we're coming up to around seven years. And then a couple of years prior to that, in my involvement in the industry, it was more sort of general population related. Um, and, you know, I've, I've been, you know, you and I have known one another, one another for quite some time. Uh, and it's been quite a progression over the last few years. And it was an absolute pleasure and an honor to have the opportunity to present at the UEBC alongside some phenomenal names. It was a, a real, a true honor. And BK, talk to me about uh, your presentation last year. So you discussed a phasic approach to natural bodybuilding. Why a phasic approach? Why is it necessary to have some form of structure and planning and quote unquote periodization uh, within your uh, nutrition and training? Yeah, I mean, look, my presentation was exactly that, a phasic approach to contest preparation and really the, the main sort of, uh, take-home point was that you know we can only liberate so much energy per unit of fat mass per unit of time therefore we should factor in a decline in our rate of loss hence the magnitude of the energy deficit over time as we move through a contest preparation uh, and I think that becomes increasingly important the the leaner you need to get an athlete in that getting as we were saying earlier off off, off air getting 
kind of lean is pretty easy. Getting very lean is very hard. And that's where we run the risk of crashing out the athlete physiologically or psychologically. And there is a larger inherent risk of muscle loss. And for us, you know, we're really balancing our nutrition and training uh, variables here so that we're able to retain that hard and muscle mass we accumulate in the off season and achieve a high level of conditioning. And obviously those two components kind of butt heads. So that's where this phasic approach comes in, whereby we go faster at the start of the contest preparation in terms of rate of loss, hence the magnitude of the energy deficit is larger, obviously to facilitate that. And we subsequently slow that down. And I believe in my presentation, the practical model that I put forward was, I believe there was five, four or five individual phases as part of that, including the, the peak week phase. Yeah. Awesome. And with the off season, that, would you say that that is one of the most important phases of a bodybuilder's career? Yeah, 100%. I, I do think it's incredibly important. Um, after all, in order to be a good bodybuilder, one must first build the body. And that's something that occurs in the off season. I definitely think it's something that a lot of people brush over. However, I will say that thanks to the content that a lot of uh, coaches and researchers alike are putting out uh, on the topic of bodybuilding, we're definitely seeing a more, I suppose you say mainstream, well, as mainstream as natural bodybuilding is, sort of uh, move towards a more structured approach in the off season. And I think it's incredibly important for a variety of reasons. You know, obviously, yes, we need to accumulate our result from the perspective of optimizing symmetry, proportion, and size in the off season, but it also sets you up for some positive habits for the contest preparation. Although we're not under the microscope in the off season, but it sets you up for a very easy transition to the contest preparation as well. Awesome. And uh, you put up a post on Instagram uh, a few days ago, uh, which I really liked. And uh, one of the first sentences, I believe, uh, this is a direct quote of yours. Uh, your body composition is a logical manifestation of your moderate to long-term training, Milu. And I couldn't agree with that more because as we know, the exposure to attention stimulus over time is what builds muscles. So, mm. uh, you know, when we have that stimulus plus, you know, the ob obvious stimulus with diet and the calorie intake that somebody's consuming, we get this representation of what they're imposing on their body, essentially. Yeah. So talk to me about that. When it comes to training, mm. um, what is the the stimulus that you're trying to get in the off season to build that physique. Yeah. You know, that, that quote, I, I often um, recite that. Uh, and I, I, I assume it's original. I don't know, maybe someone said a derivative of that, but I, the reason I often highlight that quote is because it's really important as bodybuilders that we remove our emotional attachment to a specific body composition. Right. And, you know, both you guys as evidence-based coaches, you know, you, you, understand exactly that that your body is a representation of your training and nutrition environment uh and that each phase has function there's times where you enjoy your, the look of your physique a little bit more and there's times where maybe you enjoy a little bit less but each phase has function right the off season it's about capitalizing on uh you know a, an environment that puts us in an energetic surplus and as you would say, for every gimme, there's a gotcha, right? So the, the, the dominant trait we're trying to capitalize on is lean mass decurial, but there's a associated side effect of fat, of fat gain. So despite our best efforts to attenuate it, it probably does occur. So that's why if we just approach it with that logical thought process, then we're able to embrace you know, each individual phase. So the off season uh, from a training perspective is characterized by uh, 
you know, progressive training. And obviously we have the ability to, um, we have an increased recovery ceiling in the off season. So there's periods of time where we may drive volume up towards that ceiling a bit more aggressively. Whereas in contest preparation, I tend to be quite, uh, the variables in training that we change are far and few. We basically want this system in place that does what it needs in terms of uh, giving us a stimulus that's conducive to retaining muscle. And then we just slightly tweak and adjust. Whereas in the off season, we're probably a little bit more dynamic. We're having periods where we drive volume up a lot higher, um, periods where we might pull volume down a little bit and sort of recoup, et cetera. So it's sort of a bit more dynamic in nature, so to speak. Interesting. So uh, talk to me about your off season currently, because uh, I know that's very relevant to you at the moment. You uh, competed, I believe, 2020. Yeah, 2020. Was it? Trivia time. 2019. 2019. <laughs> was it that long ago? Damn. It was, yeah. Damn, that's gone fast. Okay. Um, so I knew you'd had quite a while in your off season, at least over a year. I knew this was at least your second year. Um, so talk to, talk to us about that. And then Samuel, we'll get some insights onto how you've transitioned from your prep uh, and now moving into a more formal off season. So Brandon, what's the off season look like in terms of the training? So you talked about that dynamic um, approach to your obviously exercise um, yeah. and then how that's changed over the last, what, three years? Well, uh, look, coming out of, coming out of contest preparation, um, yeah, look, coming out of contest preparation, I had definitely a few key areas that I needed to work on. I think that, uh, getting very lean does two things. It exploits all the great things about your physique and it highlights all the things you need to work on. And, uh, pretty much for the past, well, the better half of a, de of a decade, my pecs need work and my hamstrings need work. So coming out of the contest preparation, those areas got some additional loving with, uh, I suppose you could say a specialization program of sorts. And usually a specialization program would encompass a increase in volume across the microcycle to specific tissues that need more growth and a subsequent reduction in volume in some of the key areas that perhaps are well-developed by comparison. So for me, that involved uh, basically more volume to the hamstrings. So a lot more in the way of hip hinging and knee flexion uh, volume and a little less volume towards my quads of which by comparison were quite strong. And uh, that has continued for basically two years. I've got to a point now where I'm a little bit more content with regard to my hamstring um, development. And in the last, basically the last mesocycle, the past seven weeks or so, my volume for quads and hamstrings is basically equalized. And my quads have again just went, I like this and, and blown up. So uh, yeah, so my training has been pretty simplistic, but I definitely underwent multiple, um, uh, multiple, specialization cycles for the hamstring and pec. Um, and I did, run, I did run a period where I drove my volume up a little bit higher. And unfortunately, um, I, I reached that ceiling where I did strain a hamstring uh, momentarily. Grade one strain, very minimal, very, very uh, mild, but a good indicator that I reached that true ceiling. Uh, and my volume has since sort of come down and I've actually kept it quite stable over the past um, I'm going to say eight months or so. It's been pretty, pretty stable, but it's enough stimulus for me to accumulate high quality training. Each uh, bit of volume that I put in is quality and it's allowed me to continue to progress. Yeah. So there's a couple of really interesting points there. 
uh, that I think will be useful for any physique athletes or uh, lifter who's dieted down and they're able to sort of reveal, uh, you know, their weaker body parts. And then that can basically arm them with more knowledge going into uh, their off season or a gaining phase to then uh, address those uh, muscle groups. So Samuel, after your prep, what has uh, your transition into the off season look like? Is it a similar sort of logic to Brandon where you're looking to build more muscle in areas that were say lagging on stage, or is it basically finding a baseline since you only competed uh, not that long ago, really? What was it? Five months? Three, three months. Three months. Oh yeah. December, December. Three and a half months. Um, So I guess the, the first phase post comp is not, you don't move straight in my opinion, you don't move straight into off season. And again, we're talking about this off air um, at the start of the call, the, first and foremost objective of finishing a season is recovery. And a lot of, I guess, people who may not know better presume that the weight regain is an indication of physiological recovery. And it's simply not, as we know. Um, So it's like weight regain post-comp. It's like you can put heaps of size on very quickly, return to body fat. And obviously we're all aware that we need body fat to maintain health. And we need a positive energy balance in order to give ourselves an optimal internal environment to gain muscle mass. But the reality is we still have other physiological processes that are not recovered at the same rate. So the first couple of months was mainly that. So I didn't, finishing a prep at December is like going into what most people would call like the festive period of the year where things are, you have events, you're away, all sorts of things. So that initial few months was mainly finding my feet in terms of, and this is something I would be doing with any athlete or any individual who's just finished a hard diet is let's try and return, spend some time returning to baseline, reduce some of the stress and pressure that you put on yourself when we are trying to get really, really lean and just, you know, maybe it's maintenance volume, like, or just finding out what maintenance volume is, trying to keep training you know, a little bit more enjoyable because as Brandon said, a good contest prep, in my opinion, again, would see very minimal changes to a training program because it's like, we know this works. We know that you can recover from this. Let's just like, what if it ain't broke, don't fix it sort of thing. And you might run a block for an extended period of time. Um, but now after three months, I'd say I'm pretty near fully recovered. Food focus is down, um, body weight stabilized and I'm able to kind of return to much more controlled um, nutrition. Training performance is probably the main one. The one thing that I was looking at, like towards the, the latter weeks, latter month of my prep, maybe the last, yeah, six weeks of my prep, performance tanked. That, that, was a, that coincided with the gyms reopening in Melbourne. So there was, my sleep was cut by maybe say one hour a night on average, but that and being on my feet for work tanked my performance very quickly and it's probably only just really returned in the last two or three weeks and i've been training all the way through i didn't like stop training um but just maybe took a little bit easier making sure that i didn't injure myself trying to lift pre-prep loads or anything like that and just gradually step it up and now i would say after three months settling into what is planned to be a between 50 and 70 week massing phase right as again brandon said I think it was on the call, actually. There is only so much 
lean tissue that we can stand to put on when we optimize training and diet in a given period of time. So the more that we can control our rate of gain, the less body fat we stand to put on and the more muscle mass. And frankly, the more time that you can spend productively training in a surplus and eating in a surplus, you're going to hopefully give yourself the best chance of actually developing your physique and building your body, which is the end objective. So yeah, settling into that, go for it, Brandon. I was like, can I ask you, Samuel? So I have a variety of, well, both subjective and objective markers, which I use personally and within my coaching to assess one's recovery. What metrics have you personally used over the past bit of time to deem? Oh, that's a good, that's a good question. And you're recovered. <clears throat> okay, first and foremost, so I'd say off the top of my head, uh, performance in the gym. So mm-hmm. knowing what I was able to do at approximately similar weights, so body weight I'm talking about. So my actual ability to perform in the gym being one. Um, so if I was say 70 kilos and then I lost another four, but then I weighed 74 kilos, my performance was well below what it was say on yeah. during the prep. Right. So relative weight. Yeah. Yeah. Looking very much looking at my performance, like rough numbers and how performance felt, how training felt motivation to train being probably more of a sub um, metric like a metric of that training performance because everyone knows if things are going well and you feel really good about your training and you're hitting PBs, that's going to motivate you. Food focus would be another one. Um, like when you finish a prep, I'm sure you both will attest to this. It's like you literally live meal to meal, right? And it's like, <laughs> yes. you're, you're, it's like your, your life is kind of both during and out of the prep, your life is planned around food, except one is super rigid and the other one's trying not to eat everything in sight um so once you start to not feel the need to maybe go back and eat more food once you're not really as concerned about where like what the next meal is you're not thinking about it it's like other things the priority of your focus right when it comes to maybe going off for a social outing all of a sudden the social outing is all about the food post prep so once that starts to switch back to I'm looking forward to seeing these people, not I'm looking forward to going and I'm going to have a cake there or something like that. <clears throat> so that's another one. Wonderful. Libido. Mm-hmm. Libido is a, a definitely a big one that it's like I noticed. Um, I would say libido was pretty good for the most part of the prep. Um, but again, but again, like once sleep started to suffer, that was a that took a hit along with everything else like everything else physiologically just tanked as soon as i started to lose sleep um because i was getting up earlier for work and also the quality of sleep as we know diminishes as you, you spend more time in a deficit you get leaner you're hungrier so you can't get into as deep a sleep you're waking up to go to the toilet things like that and the last one is body weight gain like you know you cannot be healthy and have absolutely no body fat that's like well there's it's not for an extended period of time right it's like it is inherently unhealthy to sustain that for all of the reasons that i just list, listed like they're unhealthy for thinking about food all the time even though that you have a fridge full of food but being like oh i need to buy all these foods just in case i'm you know starvation happens again um and yeah, sleep's probably the, the other one. Like I know I mentioned sleep, but that's probably another metric. Like once you can actually start to get 
good quality night's sleep. But I think that one comes on a lot quicker. The weight regain obviously happens really quickly. Like we try, we try and control it, but I think it's kind of like the lesser of two evils. If you gain, you know, I pretty much gained all my weight back, right? And I would still be from where I was, like by objective standpoints, on the leaner side. Like I'm sitting at like 76 now. And it's like, that's 10 kilos heavier than I was, but I'd put nearly 10 kilos on within the first month. And it's yeah. like completely stabilized since then. Good. I mean, I would say that's, that's pretty wicked. I mean, your, yeah, your, metrics, right. your metrics essentially align with mine. Um, I would use a few basic pieces. Um, you know, one, I would ask that question, which is super subjective, you know, as your food, food, food focus subsided in that, can you have, can you have a, a conversation without your mind drifting towards food? Is it, yeah. you know, two is, can you have a normal size meal? And I mean, normal as in by off season standards and feel satiated momentarily after it because satiation and satiety feedback systems yeah. are completely wrecked after a condensed prep. You know, three, uh, you know, has your libido returned to off season norms? Obviously that's, an, that's a personal piece, but is it what you would consider normal? Uh, and then obviously using alternate markers like, um, you know, reference previous reference body weight and performance. Uh, and I think, and lastly, you can use obviously biomarkers um, should you have those available. I mean, I did have my biomarkers done um, with a basic metabolic panel, including engine levels uh, at the start of my contest prep and at the end. Um, and there was a very marked 67% reduction in free testosterone by wow. the end of my contest preparation. Um, in, which, in which my GP looks at this and goes, hey, like that's almost HRT. I'm like, I am very lean. Just give me three months, mate. I'll be good to go. And and rest. And of course, with that recovery phase, that um, came back into uh, to to my personal norms very quickly. Did you do another blood test after three months? Yes. And it was returned to pre prep normal, like approximately. Yeah. Wow. That's yeah. Interesting. Unsurprising, because like, I think people always forget forget that like blood tests and just a Brandon, snapshot right that's a that's a hack for all the half natties out there who want to get that's what TRP. you know i actually said credit. it to aaron i said to aaron i'm like should i go get blood tests and then they're going to offer me like hormone replacement therapy <laughs> and i'll just jump on it and make the switch <laughs> i didn't i didn't do that obviously because i'm still i'm i'm nowhere near as lean or big as i would be if i had yeah, yeah. But yeah, definitely a hack. It's just it's just what it takes to get there. It's probably not worth it's probably not worth it. And you've just fucked your body up trying to get prescribed HRT normally. Oh yeah, yeah. Cool. So just biomarkers. <clears throat> sorry. Um, yeah, I do think biomarkers can offer, I mean, they're a snapshot in time. Um, uh, obviously functional biomarkers can give you a slightly wider window for assessment, but they're a good, you know, alternate piece for nutrition assessment, right? So, and I don't ask all my athletes to, to get biomarkers, but uh, it can give you a good, good little snapshot. And obviously for me personally, I thought, great, this would be a, a good uh, bit of additional data for me to have in the contest prep and in the post-contest preparation phase, a bit of a reference. So, yeah. Yeah. So no, definitely BK, when it comes to something I wanted to continue on was your round training in the off season. So when it comes to, uh, pushing volume. So it sounds like that was one of the primary variables that you were manipulating um, yeah. throughout this off season. So you're obviously trying to push it as high as you can, and then you had to bring it back down. Um, outside of 
straining a hamstring and yep. that being sort of a very uh, unfortunate proxy that volume is a little bit too high. Um, if we were to look at what your proxies are for driving volume up versus yep. bringing it down in the off season, um, what are they and how do you go about um, making those changes in, in volume? Yeah, yeah. I mean, look, I think one really simplistic proxy, which I think is very is pretty standard is obviously using delayed onset muscle soreness between training sessions in the same tissues as a reference point. Um, you know, that may occur occasionally when you're changing to a new program, which encompasses a whole lot of novel training stimulus. But if I'm moving session to session consistently and I'm carrying soreness over, there's a fair, you know, it's a, it's a, a fair assumption that my recovery status is, uh, you know, not, not up to scratch in the, in that sort of peripheral fraction. Um, yeah. So, I mean, I, I'll definitely utilize that. Um, obviously utilize strength progression as well in the, you know, across the board, but also in those specific tissues. Uh, personally, I do like to work in a six to eight week, uh, progression system before needing to deload. If I need to deload on the fourth week, I would say, you know what, I've accumulated too much volume too fast. Um, or rather better said, I've accumulated too much fatigue too fast due to my, uh, volume and or movement selection slash, uh, loading parameters. So I would use strength progression and uh, DOMS as my sort of primary key point. You know, I'll also lean on, um, you know, training motivation slash sleep metrics as very sort of secondary markers. As you know, unfortunately, there's no singular data point that we can lean on and say, hey, this says X, Y, and Z. Um, so we'll kind of bring it all together, but those would be my main pieces. I just wanted to ask two things. Do you have a <clears throat> notice in your clients or yourself uh, the mm. psychological implications of say certain lifts or certain sessions as you get deeper into a mesocycle so that you find that oh, I've got hard squats this week it's like last week was hard and then you it gets a Tuesday and you're like on Thursday I've got a squat again you start to it becomes more, plays more and more of a role like in the back <laughs> of your mind well, I mean, yeah, I mean, I can say that I'm nervous for most of my late sessions, man. Like uh, I need to get a certain level of psychotic to get that performance out. Right. Uh, for example, you know, doing like 25 to 30 repetitions on the pendulum squat, which represents, which is the final movement in my current. Uh, is that in one set? Uh, there's two sets. Um, two sets of 20? Oh my God. Uh, well, at the end of last training cycle, it was 25 to 30. So oh at the God. end of that's, that's the last movement in that training um, session. So that, that plays on my, that's on a Friday. That plays on my mind from like a Tuesday. I'm like far out, yeah. man. But that, Whoa, that, that's, that's what I mean. Like, so as you get deeper into the block and the load start to get heavier and that session gets harder and harder. It's like, mm -hmm. obviously that's, it's not always a motivation consideration, but more of, it's, a, it's kind of a different psychological experience. It's like, you're not demotivated to do the session, but it beca it's like nearly an anxiety. Right? It's performance yeah. anxiety. That's, yeah. See what that's it, exactly what it is. It can work two ways for different, depending on your personality traits, right? If you're like me, you're like, far out, man, this is going to be hard. I'm excited for it. I yeah, know it's going to be hard. It. I know that, that this coming is going to be temporary. I know the training block is temporary. I've got a deload coming up that's going to separate this block to the next. And I know that that hardship will get me to where I want to go. You know, I, I suppose as a natural athlete, like my head space is like, okay, I didn't choose the easy route. Um, you know, and I'm willing to suffer for an outcome. And that goes for everything in life, right? I, I, I believe that, you know, yes, you want to be efficient, but no matter how 
you know, efficiently away, you still got to go through some hardship. But then again, another personality might, it, it might play on their mind to the point where it, you know, destroys their, uh, you know, psychological ability to perform in that movement. So yeah. I suppose you've got to approach it on a case by case basis. But I think having some nerves for a training session is probably not a bad thing. Like personally, I'm like, that gives me an edge, right? I think it's like, it means you're pushing and actually taking yourself out of a comfort zone. If you do experience a degree of anxiety and those nerves, again, it's just like, you know, even from like powerlifting and Jacob, you would have seen this coaching powerlifters. I'm not sure if you coached many powerlifters, Brendo. No. Probably none ever. Okay. Well, it's like when weights start to get heavy, people start to like, again, just the exact same thing. They start to like get a bit anxious about it. Mm -hmm. And it's interesting to see how there's like a divergent, um, approach to that anxiety and those like kind of pre-lift jitters do you know on the yeah. topic i think on, just on that so i just want to add to something, we'll have something a, to lot say. Of, a lot of the the factors that play into that whether or not somebody relishes in it or not is going to be based on past experiences and performances yeah. as well Great. so i think there's a large like psychological element that is somebody's you know belief in their abilities which is self-efficacy so somebody has to have gone through these experiences where they've had these disgusting leg sessions or they're nervous for a session but then come out on top right and it's like they have to chalk up those wins over time to then feel like they're able to you know fight back against the iron so to speak and go into these workouts um you know with excitement you know, at how hard it's going to be as opposed to being afraid because we, we're typically only afraid of things. One, if we have a phobia, that's like a pathological you know, condition. But the second is yeah. uh, if it's unknown, right? That's why we're afraid of death and things like this because it's unknown. But when you go into something knowing that you've done it before or have, you know, achieved something similar within close proximity to that thing that you're going to be doing such yeah. as, you know, re- just a really hard leg session. You might not have ever done those weights before for those reps, but you've, you've been scared. You've had this feeling before. I think that's a huge factor in preparing athletes mm-hmm. for those, uh, those tougher moments. And that's what bodybuilding essentially does. And that's why a lot of people, you know, they can't sustain that over a long period because it's just not who they are. And I think that's a really interesting point because they can do it for short periods of time for maybe a couple of years when, you know, they're at uni or whatever, but it's like, it's just not fundamentally, um, you know, who they are. Some people either have, have got that knack to just yeah. be an animal in the gym and some people don't. Some people can be learned and they can maintain it for a while, but some people it's just like, you know, the biology has, uh, you know, there's a, there's a leash there, the environment can pull it, you know, so yeah. far, but the leash is still designed the same, right? I, I do think that, uh, you know, building self-efficacy is super important and, um, you know, overall, you know, I'm definitely, you know, I'm no psychologist, but I do believe that uh, there are many variables that contribute to one's immediate trainability, right? But if we had to nail down one singular variable that had the largest weigh in, I would say it's one psychology. You can step into a training session, well-fueled, well-recovered, but with a shite mentality, and you're not going to be able to leverage your best performance, right? It really is an important, uh, you know, an important component. Um, and it can work with you or against you, depending on how you train your mind. Uh, and your thought processes surrounding whatever, you know, activity that you're participating in. Um, But yeah, another point you bring up there is on the topic of, you know, longevity, right? I definitely think that um, it's, it's interesting. I've been in, I've been in the industry for for quite some time, as have you guys, and I'm sure you've seen athletes come and go, right? Some individuals, you know, have that, well, 
it's hard to nail it down to one thing, whether it's just they got that true passion for it um, or it's a personality trait, you know, they can stick with it for years and years and years and grind, right? Um, and others just, you know, come, come into, into the sport for a time and then, you know, maybe life changes or they just can't sustain it. So they sort of depart. You know, regardless, I will say that bodybuilding through the life cycle, so to speak, definitely changes. Uh, I know that you, for example, Jacob, have kids. Samuel, I'm actually not sure if you have children, but no. So, you know, I don't have children, Rachel and I don't, but, you know, it, it definitely, the way I bodybuild now versus how I bodybuilded when I was 19 years old, I was a uh, time wealthy student, right? I don't care about spending five hours and you want to say that's great. Things are a bit different now. So definitely, you know, bodybuilding through life definitely changes. And, um, you know, as I'm sure you guys can relate. Well, that is Very a much, huge uh, point that I think not a lot of people are uh, familiar with. And even, you know, the same goes for strength training uh, through mm -hmm. the life cycle, even nutrition through the life cycle. It's one of these things, Brandon, I know that uh, you're studying this um, currently, but when you sort of zoom out and look at things like that, you can see that this phasic approach, you know, occurs on a number of different levels, right? You have macro, well, we have life cycle, then you have macro, meso, micro, and then, you know, the day-to-day -day stuff, right? And I think as bodybuilders, we often get pulled into the day-to-day -to -day too much. Like we're looking at optimizing, you know, protein uh, intake at, at each meal. We're looking at, you know, just one stimulus, you know, in any given session, and we struggle to really zoom out um, beyond, say, the next competition. Mm. Um, and I think that's where a coach can really help uh, in you do that. But I also think for a lot of lifters who are serious about the sport and a lot of uh, competitors, it's probably a good idea if you're shooting for a pro card in, you know, five years time, for example, and you might have kids, you might have a job to actually zoom out to that, you know, bodybuilding life cycle, right? And to actually say, hey, how can my bodybuilding potentially change? And what are some of the factors that could influence what my bodybuilding, you know, training and diet looks like in five years time? And how can I better prepare for that? So when that happens, I don't have to exit the sport. Yeah, 100%. 100%. Interesting. So BK, one thing I wanted to touch on before we... Uh, get into something else uh, is you mentioned that you have a predetermined mesocycle structure that lasts around six to eight weeks and then you yep. demote. Is that for you personally or is that just your general approach? Um, and if so, can you sort of uh, unpack that a little bit for us? Yeah, look, that is for me personally, but I will admit um, for a good portion of the athletes I work with, I will shoot for somewhere within that sort of six to 12 week mark. Occasionally I have a freak who can do 12 weeks of, high, of really high quality training or maybe the start of their microcycle, sorry, uh, mesocycle is not of the quality they first thought, uh, in which case they reach the, those, those super high uh, intensities towards the tail end of the content, uh, sorry, of the mesocycle and they can last a little bit longer. Um, but look, in my scenario, um, you know, I, I modulate volume very, very minimally through a mesocycle. Uh, basically, I, I'm very big on having intro weeks, you know, an intro week um, where, Basically, it offers a transition from the prior training block. And obviously, there is going to be some double training stimulus there. But I'm big on not making massive jumps. We're not going to change completely everything. Uh, so it requires us multiple weeks to sort of acclimate. We're just basically going to shift the stimulus enough um, that it is going to be conducive to fresh adaptation. And part of what I would do in terms of determining what movement selections, for example, we might change is going to be predetermined on 
prior progression. Like what have I been able to progress on really well? Uh, and perhaps I'll use some sensory feedback as well. This movement feels really good in terms of the stimulus, the subjective, uh, I suppose you say, subjective markers of you know muscular perturbation. Great, I'm gonna keep this guy in for the next training block and X, Y, Z, we're gonna change out. Um, so I'm big on running an intro week. The intro week will have maybe, let's just say as a general 15 to 30% less volume. And basically we're going to apply a high supporting intensity somewhere within the realms of sort of two to three reps short of failure. After that, it gives us a good uh, buffer for, well, training harder in closer proximity to failure, moving into week number two, of which volumes will go up towards what I would deem normal for myself or the athlete of whom I'm working with. And then from there, we're basically going to keep those volumes in terms of sets pretty stable throughout the, the remaining section of the block. Um, once we get to that point where we're either really struggling for progression and or accumulating some signs of, usually it's peripheral fatigue that limits us as bodybuilders, not so much the central components, uh, then obviously it's time for us to take a moment to, uh, to shut down shop, uh, look after the internal kind of workings with the deload and then move on from there. Uh, and for me personally, by the way, um, obviously everyone structures a deload differently and I would simply define it as a, basically a, a reduction of training intensity and or volume with a specific function of facilitating recovery, washing off the accumulated fatigue from the prior successful mesocycle. In my scenario, I do generally, not always, but generally, I will reduce the volume down. I'll keep the intensity relatively high. We won't go too failure, but we'll still train at a, within a couple of reps short of failure in that week. However, if I have an individual of whom, or myself for that matter, who is exhibiting signs of, you know, central fatigue accumulation where it's just mentally far out, I can't do this. That would be obviously an environment or a scenario rather where we might reduce that intensity as well just to really, really keep across the board. Yeah, I like it. And I think uh, your approach there is uh, very similar to mine. And I think that's one of the biggest uh, pieces of the bodybuilding uh, puzzle that we've sort of uncovered over maybe the last three or four years is learning how to design progression within a mesocycle. I'm sure you can probably remember back in you know the day when you used to write programs, it would just be, here's your program and you know train hard. And yes, there was some weight progression and stuff, but we didn't really have this mesocycle progression or framework at how we looked at the training uh, system over multiple weeks. It was, you know, obviously trying to train hard and add weight to the bar, but I don't think we had the knowledge and understanding that we do now, um, which, which is great to see. Uh, and one thing that you mentioned that you're looking for is increase in training performance across uh, the weeks. Now, how does that change uh, with a lifter's advancement and how does that correlate to muscle tissue for the listeners who might be thinking, why do, do we need to add weight to the bar? Don't we just train hard? Yeah, I mean, obviously, as an advanced athlete, it becomes more challenging to facilitate fresh adaptation. Um, and obviously, from, from the perspective of, you know, why do we add load? Uh, or why do we overload as a whole, which obviously encompasses not just increasing weight, but increasing reps or increasing proficiency in the movement to direct stress to tissues, um, obviously, we need to do that because, well, hypertrophy is, you know, an intensity and volume mediated adaptation. And as we adapt, the, uh, you know, the, the relative intensity reduces. So in order to keep pace with that, we need to overload over time. Um, but definitely as an advanced athlete, that progression is going to be uh, much slower. In fact, it's almost subliminal 
uh, in a advanced athlete when you're looking at smaller movement selections. For example, let's look at say the lateral raise that I perhaps did for three sets, or let's say for one set of 10 a decade ago, let's say it was maybe for argument's sake, let's say it was 10 kilos, whereas maybe I might do uh, 20 kilos now with maybe a, a smidge of momentum, right? Uh, that's 10 kilos of progression at those given repetitions in 10 years. So tracking one kilo per year, and you know, it wasn't a linear piece. It was probably very quick at the start and very slow and recent. It's almost, it's so minuscule. We almost don't have a tool that's sensitive to pick up that uh, very slow rate of, of progression. So, you know, I think that in the advanced guys, it definitely happens slower. And that's where you do need to also lean on not just numerical progression, but, you know, qualitative progression as well you need to bring it all in uh for the advanced athlete yeah i like that and I, and I tend to agree because i think as you know there's a lot happening when we lift weights um but what we're concerned with as bodybuilders is that mechanical tension um mm. and that isn't just a function of um, the load which basically determines the magnitude of that tension and then you've got the sets and reps which is essentially the duration of tension those combined um, will determine how much tension, but I think also your technical execution and range of motion, which plays a big role in your mind, muscle connection, all those qualitative things that you're talking about will determine how much of that mechanical tension is actually getting to the muscle. Right. And I think as we become more experienced, there's that slowdown in uh, load progression, but we almost get this uptick in our, uh, mind muscle connection and our technical execution yeah. so with the same or lesser loads we might even be able to get more mechanical tension i think that's mm -hmm. certainly something that uh more advanced lifters can do um which makes it even more interesting but also difficult to sort of quantify that uh like yeah. tension stimulus and then the subsequent load progression and what other measurements do you use bk with uh, your advanced guys or your athletes in the off season, obviously scale weight, I'm sure is one progress yeah. photos, girths. Um, how do you sort of bring all those pieces together to get a you know full picture of what's going on? Yeah. I mean, look for my, uh, for my advanced guys on an online basis, I very rarely have uh, the ability to do, you know, surface anthro, you know, stuff like skin folds. Uh, maybe an occasional DEXA, but obviously when you're working with an advanced athlete, the uh, obviously the there is limited precision or repeatability with a DEXA. And if you're looking at a few hundred grams of additional lean mass, like you need to put on a fair amount to uh, to make it meaningfully show off on a DEXA, right? But we do use that occasionally. Um, visual body weight performance and sensory feedback are going to be my primary pieces for assessing progress uh, in general. Awesome. And how would you say on a scale of one to 10, how's your progress this off season been? Oh, I'll tell you what, I'm going to say, uh, I'm going to say, oh, I'm always modest, man. Let's say it's an eight, right? Um, I'm going to say it's an eight. It's been good, but. Um, what are some of the challenges or what, where are you lacking those additional two points? Cause come 12, 24 months time when I chat to you uh, next, uh, or not next, but I chat to you formally about this stuff next. Yeah, I want, I want to hear that your off-season's up at a 10. So what are the two things you need to do, BK, to take it to a 10? I think uh, I'm a big believer that there's a big difference between training at 98% and training at 100%, right? And uh, at the top end is where the majority of the progress is accumulated. It's also the 
you know, the realm which requires the mental, most mental fortitude to sustain over a long duration as needed for a bodybuilder. And I have definitely found that over the past couple of years, I am definitely less time wealthy compared to where I was in the years prior. And that means that, uh, you know, there is definitely times where I have to prioritize my training sessions or not. Better said, I have to put in place specific time limits for my training. Um, and also it becomes a bit more challenging later in life to focus entirely on your training session without having, you know, your thoughts a little bit jaded on other things external to the gym. Uh, I definitely found it easier in the early part of my career to walk into the gym and leave absolutely everything outside and just go to absolute town. Whereas now I do train in the morning. I do that because uh, there is no business responsibilities before 8am for me. Uh, so it's my time. Uh, but really, you know, I'd say it's, it, it's, it may indeed be closer towards that 10 to 10, but, um, you know, I think there's a, probably a couple of occasions where, you know, I, I could have digged a little bit deeper for, you know, that two weeks of that mesocycle here or there, where maybe uh, it was comp time and workload was four times higher in that, at that time, right? So, yeah. Gotcha. And when you're assessing that, I just want to sort of get into your head uh, for a little bit here. Do you actually look back and sort of work that out and make that determination based on like, oh, yeah, was, yeah I remember that, <clears throat> excuse me, I remember that session or I remember I had a bad night's sleep here and there was probably that one week where, yeah, I was, you know, a little bit busy with work. Are you actually assessing that stuff throughout your off season? And when it comes time to prep, does that play on your mind uh, you know, in that decision to go into a prep? Because I know for a lot of bodybuilders, even if they get on stage and they've had, say, one meal, you know, like I remember I got on stage back in a long time ago. <laughs> I always say that I'm sick of saying the, uh, the date makes me feel even older. Um, I had one, I think it was like one night in my first prep where I ate a tablespoon. Literally, this was the only thing I did that was off my plan. I had a mm -hmm. tablespoon of peanut butter. And I remember like when I got on stage, I was like, <laughs> I was thinking about that. I was like, you fucked it if you lose this because of that. <laughs> right? Yes, yes. So are you doing that with your off season? Are you like sort of viewing things, obviously not in the, the same way there, but is that is that how you assess it? Look, I definitely participate in frequent reflection, both personally and professionally all the time. I think uh, experiential That's learning is incredibly right. important. Um, and I do this, like I said, across across all areas of life. Uh, and that's why I can look back at, you know, each week of training. I look at my, I look at my notes that I've made and I'm going, you know what, there's an area for improvement. Here's an area for improvement there. Um, and, and, you know, I, I will say this, when it comes to contest prep, I'm all in. Like when I bodybuild, I'm out there for bodybuild and I'll make sure that my environment is conducive to ensuring my best outcome in that phase. But obviously contest preparation success is predicated on off-season success. Um, and, and so, yes, you know, I'll, I'll get to the start of my contest prep and I'll have a sort of, a top-down review of the off-season and uh, kind of assess, you know, where I'm at. But in the end, going into contest preparation for me will be, uh, whether I do or don't, really comes down to A, the environment, is it conducive to my best outcome? And B, have I made the necessary progress to step on stage with a better physique? Because I'm not going to walk on stage within the same as last time that's went on. Um, yeah. All right. All right. I don't know if that answers your question or not, but yeah. <laughs> a little bit, a little bit. The fact that you sort of sidestepped it tells me that you probably beat yourself up about those things more than you're willing to let on. So I think uh, saying nothing said more than you realize. Um, 
Now, well, BK, thank you very much for coming on, Jim Goss, mate. We love your work. We love chatting to you. You're always a wealth of knowledge. Hopefully, the listeners didn't need to get out their dictionary on too many occasions there. Um, I did notice that you didn't bring out the titrate. Well done. I think uh, I, owe you, I owe you a meal or something based on uh, the bet I had at the UABC. I remember that much. But uh, BK, we'll chat to you soon. Listeners, uh, all of you who want to check out BK's work, highly recommend you do so. We'll put some links uh, in the description box and we'll chat to you all next time. Thank you so much, guys. Cheers. Thanks, Brando. Thanks, Jacob. Appreciate it, guys. Brando.